Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. We apologize for the bit of the off week here. It's We're going to be a few days late here on this episode here in the middle of March 2023, but we're here with you anyway. It's not like we didn't give you some content. We put out episode two of Ether Hour talking about the uncanonized czars, so be sure to check that out. That'll be at the link in the description here on Substack or on YouTube. But got a big week here. Like I said, we've uh, covered that stuff. We've got some more big stuff coming on the Substack as well. But Dimitri, how are you? Doing great, Conrad. Lots of um, fresh, some sad, but some other really exciting news from around the world from the last week and a half or so. Um, definitely a lot to discuss. And frankly, we've just appreciated all the feedback we've received from our some of the new AFA Hour episodes, the premium episodes on our Substack for subscribers, which we've released. And some of the ideas we have scheduled, I think you guys will really enjoy it. So feel free to open, you know, try out the trial on the Substack. Uh, check out some of the premium content. I think you'll, if you do appreciate the you know the every the weekly episodes of world war now these will you know also possibly interest you especially some of the juicy information you receive it's really unlike anything else on the internet at least in audio form so definitely check it out but definitely a lot of subjects today um from all basically all around the globe definitely getting very multipolar and geopolitical today yeah no we're going from the caucuses to you know crazy stuff going on in america to obviously stuff going on in ukraine and iran china so it's uh big things going on obviously we we have the extra weekend to prepare, so there's even more news. But with all that being said, I think we're going to dive into what's going on in the little nation that could of Georgia, where there's what appeared to be a full-blown attempt at another color revolution response to what was an anti-foreign agent law put forward by the parliament of Georgia, which is the Georgian Dream Party, which, while not necessarily being a pro-Western party explicitly. They're very much not a pro-Russian party. They're really just a Georgian independence nationalist party that makes it very explicit that they try their best to be independent, but are ultimately mostly influenced by the EU and the US. But we saw the capital Tbilisi descend into chaos and protests, all for a bill that would just require organizations that receive over 20% of their funding from overseas to register as foreign agents. A lot of countries have these laws. So, uh, Dimitri, what are your thoughts on this, uh, on this development? Well, I think it's, if anything, that, um, you know, the events that occurred between the 6th of March and the 10th of March, 2023 are actually a case study in, in how color revolutions are prepared and what, what happens when they actually, uh, don't achieve their goals explicitly, but implicitly they do, um, instill this level of fear, at least in the politicians of a given nation, informing them that, hey, if you guys do not toe the line of the liberal democratic uh, hegemony, you know, reigning in the world, this includes the EU, the US, and other, you know, f large foreign bodies around around the planet. We can call them the globalists, if you, if you may. But if you do not toe that line, Georgia, or the Georgian parliament, we will cause a color revolution in your country and there's nothing you can do about it and in fact the entire mass media machine of the west will also side with the revolutionaries and they will overthrow your democratically elected government you know uh you know i have to say that without sarcasm and your country will be taken over essentially and frankly the law that they were trying to push through the georgian parliament wasn't even that controversial it was simply that the bill was simply named law and transparency of foreign influence and it mainly affected non-governmental organizations or so-called ngos which are involved in georgia now a lot of these ngos are of course are funded from abroad from overseas american universities um you know university grants 
organizations, some of them related to, you know, big characters such as George Soros. We know he was quite active in sponsoring a lot of these movements in Ukraine itself, which unexaggerated, you know, this isn't an exaggeration, but these movements were part of the reason why the Maidan was so effective in 2014, because they were installed in Ukraine since the early 90s. But such movements were active in Georgia as well, since the 90s as well, since the fall of the Soviet Union. And finally, the Georgian parliament said, hey, maybe we should kind of push down, push push out against some of these foreign influences, especially from Western nations, as well as this law also would apply to, say, foreign influence from the Russian Federation, for example, against the you know, possible FSB funding or even SBU funding. Or it's very, it's very, the bill is very general. It's not a pro-Russian bill, so to speak. In fact, it mirrors the exact bill that, say, the United States has adopted many decades ago, as well as Russia in 2022, when the special military operation began, the Russian Federation instituted the law against foreign agents, which outlawed some pretty well-known organizations in Russia. I'll, I'll just name three. There was a Two radio stations named Rain TV, Dozh, and Medusa TV, which was Medusa TV was also a bit less popular but very liberal. And essentially, these laws targeted these radio stations, completely outlawing them because these stations were receiving explicit foreign funding from the United States from various large universities and other, you know, more covert sites, possibly linked to agencies such as the CIA. There's no real evidence to that, but I'm sure the Russians had something on them, which is why they shut them down in the first place. And of course, the third largest organization this law shut down in Russia was the anti-corruption fund of uh, Alexei Navalny, who is now, of course, imprisoned for all kinds of commercial machinations. But his his primary organization, the uh, anti-corruption fund, was completely disbanded and made illegal, actually named a foreign agency and completely made illegal. So Georgian, it seems the Georgian liberals and those associated with these NGOs have also suspected that this law may somehow attack their revenue streams, you know, and kind of change their ways of operation in Georgia. And of course, what kind of influence do these what kind of influence do these NGOs bring? Well, as me and Conrad believe, it's probably not, none of it is probably Christian, none of it is positive, and uh, none of these influences would uh, enrich the Georgian nation's already strong cultural heritage. Of course, these things are from abroad and they bring around foreign, very alien ideas to the Georgian people. And of course, the classic display of a color revolution, English language signs, Ukrainian flags, EU flags in a country that has extremely low foreign language speaking proficiency. There are a lot of Georgians only speak Georgian and they... Uh, and again, it's just, the Georgian language only really exists in Georgia. If you're going to, to convince domestic Georgians, you need to make the signs in Georgian. But that's not who it's for. It's to convince the public and in other countries to manufacture consent for just a total stamping on the, the will of the people of, of this Orthodox country. And just a big similarity, fortunately, not unfortunately, but Dimitri said they didn't really go, they didn't have to go full color revolution because they're in, in Georgia. The president is already a U.S. puppet and the parliament is only against the U.S. insofar as they are a better reflection of the actual Georgian people because one party does have a supermajority and those people are locally elected. But even they still are very, very reticent to do any, to step out of line from the U.S. playbook. Even the, the prime minister, who's the, who's the person that was pushing forward the law to begin with, he had to come out after all these Georgians were outraged at the U.S.'s blatant interference. He had to say, some of the comments from our allies were were misconstrued and were confusing to the people when the U.S. was openly saying that they would just start sanctioning Georgian politicians who supported this law, which is just absurd. 
So he he had to walk back. He even though he didn't say anything, he had to basically walk back the Georgian people's outrage on their behalf to his U.S. overlords, which is just embarrassing. But the similarities to Ukraine continue in the sense that so after Yanukovych, the elected president of Ukraine, the pro-Russian president was cooed out in the Maidan. He was replaced by Petro Poroshenko, who was a much more insane ultra-nationalist than even Zelensky, if you can you know believe that these days. But much like Ukraine in that regard, Georgia, a few presidents back had uh, Mikhail Shakashvili, who was a total U.S. puppet, as well as an actual former politician in Ukraine. He was literally like a Ukrainian Georgian. But he, he's he been like locked up in like a hospital and has all these weird videos of him like drunkenly like pooping and shitting himself. But he it was this like so – he ultimately got voted out just like Poroshenko because he, despite being like the ultimate – kind of pro-EU, pro-Western candidate, he was so universally despised by like the people that they had to get him out or else the West feared poor Russians taking back over again, like what happened in, in Ukraine. They had to get to Zelensky or else the pro-Russian party might have even been victorious had he not kind of run from the center. But there's one of the biggest NGOs that this affects, many of these being cultural NGOs like Tbilisi Pride, who are the people that put on the disgusting pride parade at the center of Tbilisi every year. In 2021, people will remember, especially if you had subscribed to my newsletter at the time, that in 2021, the Georgian church and many protesters completely disrupted the parade and stormed the offices of Tbilisi pride itself and threw down the flags and tore it down. And I believe for months, like they literally had to like, people had to flee the country and they were also effectively non-operational for at least a few months at some point. So it shows you that a united people in that regard can you know, do direct action and be effective there. But unfortunately, it seems that the law has been withdrawn and the Georgian politicians are basically admitting that, yeah, we had to withdraw it for the interest of our nation or else we would have descended into chaos, which is, that's that should definitely be really reassuring to any Georgian patriots out there. But one of the things we saw was insane provocateurs and the more crazy people on the side of the Georgian anti-Russia operation that we the Georgians need to invade South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Do you uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think the level of provo- provocation we saw on that end it very heavily mimicked the rhetoric of Poroshenko when he was stating that the Crimea needs to be taken back. That you know Donbass, Donetsk, Lugansk, all of these territories need to be Ukrainian again. That the protest in Odessa in Kharkov needs to be put down. This is in 2014 and 15 when the Maidan was still fresh. And the Ukrainian people were actually finding themselves, a lot of these Ukrainian pro-Russian people were in fact finding themselves actually very keen and eager to vote on perhaps a more, on a more unionist position with Russia. I don't want to say separatist because Ukraine as a nation state is a separatist project from the great Russian civilization, but a more unionist position to unite themselves with Russia. And, and definitely those movements were shut down by Poroshenko, and Poroshenko began what would be this uh, Western globalist reconquista of the Ukrainian lands, which Zelensky continues to this day. So definitely Poroshenko, an interesting character, worth reading about in your own time. And uh, his sort of ethnic roots are also quite questionable. I'm not going to go into that in too much detail, but there are question marks there, especially about some of his staffers and people he was surrounded by. Definitely an interesting character, which Zelensky mimics as well and almost perfectly repeats in conduct. Now, uh, another analogy I would find very interesting would be the protests in Belarus between 2020 and 21, where you saw, again, 
we all saw the um, formation of what would possibly be this color revolution. And of course, Lukashenko chose to shut it down in a very, in a very perhaps you could say violent police heavy way. It's similar to how you know some protests were shut down in France, or even at the moment when France is shutting down protesters, you know, in a very sort of violent, explicit way. But Lukashenko really did put his foot down and said, "No, we're not going to have this liberal Western influence, this Lithuanian, this neo-Polish Lithuanian type of uh, um, de-Belarusization of our land. This isn't going to happen. We're not going to invite all these weird unions into power. I'm not going to allow." Uh, any democratic elections in Belarus to be overturned by these Western puppets. And so Lukashenko put his foot down, shut the protest down with force, which the Georgians did not. In fact, the Georgians, as Conrad just mentioned, the parliament actually seceded and rescinded the bill. They said, hey, okay, calm down, guys. No more protesting. We're going to rescind the bill. We're not going to pass it through parliament. In fact, we're all going to unanimously vote against it in the next hearing, and that's it. It's going to get shut down. And of course, the president of Georgia returns to Georgia, and she's very happy that um, the country kind of stays on this Western uh, status quo path. Now, naturally speaking, what everybody feared was that Georgia would, you know, Maidan would occur, that the country would escalate into this Ukraine 2.0 in the Caucasus, and in fact, it would cause an... Um, it would, of course, what would what would be the inspiration, the the Western liberal nationalistic, and it's weird saying nationalistic and liberal in the same sentence, but that's exactly what we saw this uh, synthesis of this chimera of sorts occur in the Ukraine in the first place. Is Poroshenko essentially leading a liberal nationalistic reconquista of Ukraine into the Donbass and against Crimea? Um, the same would occur in Russia, as Conrad mentioned. Southern Ossetia, I mean, Northern Ossetia, uh, no, in fact, Southern Ossetia and Abkhazia on the coast of the Black Sea would, would in fact be perfect targets for the new Georgian Rikinkista and the sort of reestablishment of itself as a liberal Western future NATO republic. And unfortunately, we did not see that, but that's still on the cards. And you, you better believe it that NATO have this playbook to have a whole probably um, have a whole folder full of, you know, strategies exactly on how to make this happen. Um, now, Abkhazia and Ossetia, I guess, to kind of describe these two lands, Abkhazia is right on the coast of uh, on the coast of the Black Sea on the eastern coast, and it touches the ancient lands of Kolkida, which you know Jason and the Argonauts traveled to in the ancient Greek days to find the um, to, to find the treasure and to fight dragons. So these these lands go back way into the, the um, pre-Trojan War times in Greek mythology. Now, Abkhazia is uh, naturally, it, it it's mostly populated by Abkhazians, who are a very distinct Caucasian people, very different from Georgians, in a way somewhat Georgian in their ancestry, but also somewhat distinct as well. Now, Abkhazians do see themselves as separate from Georgians, but also separate from Russians. And today, unfortunately, since 2008, Abkhazians as well as South Ossetians have become um, these... Uh, semi-member states of Russia, in a way, similar to how Puerto Rico is under the protectorate of the United States, Abkhazia and South Ossetia are under this administrative protectorate of of the Russian Federation. Now, Abkhazians are really, um, I guess, I, it's hard for me to describe the people in general, but uh, it would be fair to say they are very um, culturally stuck up, and they kind of see themselves as separate from both Georgians and Russians. They wouldn't necessarily be eager to join Russia, as well as they, they would probably prefer to be this little Switzerland on the coast of the Black Sea with their um, this little Sochi, this little independent um, Israel, so to speak, of the of the Black Sea coast. Now, South Ossetians are more pro-Russian than even. I would say even Dagestanis or maybe perhaps even Chechens at this point, South Ossetians, they even have this large Orthodox Christian population. And 
North Ossetia has been in the within the territory of Russia for many centuries now, at least two, two, two and a half centuries. So these people have lived alongside Orthodox Russians for a very long time, as long as the, not as long as the Georgians, but they do appreciate Russian culture to, to the point where we saw many South Ossetians sign up as volunteers to fight in the special military operation in early last year. And now South Ossetia is this territory which Georgians claim is still theirs, that Russia has taken control of, that Georgians need to re retake. Ossetians, again, ethnically very similar to Georgians in that same Caucasian group. They're not ethnically Russian either, but they're very, very sympathetic towards Russia. And Georgians were also sympathetic towards Russia in the, you know, 200 years ago during the Russian Empire. Now, unfortunately, the so Soviet history and the revolutions and the, and the history of the 90s kind of broke these two Orthodox nations apart, but there was still this common ground, which Ossetians have held on to. In fact, and we see this, Ossetians really do love Russians, and Ossetians are, you can say, South Ossetia is perhaps the Donbass, the Lugansk, and the Donetsk of the southern Caucasus, you can almost say that much, which means that if the Georgians, if a Maidan would have occurred in Georgia, the first place they would have, of course, tried to retake would be South Ossetia, and Russians would have had to defend South Ossetia as they defended Donbass in February 2022. So that's the imp that's that was the utmost kind of the implication of this entire protest. Now, the fact that it hasn't occurred only means that it has been postponed until later, if anything. The West isn't going to let go of Georgia. They're not going to allow Russian influence to infiltrate Georgia and to kind of bring it back to its orthodox roots. That's never going to happen. So the Georgia is always going to be an ace up the sleeve of NATO as well as the EU powers that, you know, continue to cause chaos around the world. Yeah, so South Ossetia, there's a much better case for it to perhaps be reunified with North Ossetia, which is already part of Russia, of course, than there is for them to really push for Abkhazia to rejoin, especially as we've seen the Russian church has actually made it pretty clear that they're not really interested in supporting the idea of the Abkhazian Orthodox Church as like a separate entity from the Georgian Orthodox Church. And the, the local priests there have even like suspended services to quote unquote like force Metro, uh, Patriarch Kirill's hand. And there's also apparently even a schismatic Abkhazian Orthodox Church that's ultimately under, of course, the ecumenical patriarchate. So no surprise there. We'll see. We could see, maybe see the EP get involved in the whole Georgia thing if those things start to kick off a bit more. We know they like to, we know that the, from our perspective, we view the global machinations as certain cover for even the ecclesial machinations. But, you know, the EP will try to, the, the powers that be will try to get the EP, who they know are already on their side, involved to just muddy the waters and give those that seek to divide the church more of a, a pretense to to schism and do do horrible things. So pray for that, that doesn't happen. But yeah, Georgia, it's very fascinating. You know, it's one of our favorite countries to analyze and look at. We love talking about St. Gabriel or Gabadze. And, you know, one of the things in my initial World War III thread in my article, you know, Georgia is one of those countries that will it be, if, if, if it makes the wrong choice, it will very much be a, a bad place to be, I think, during, you know, the coming tribulations due to its proximity to Russia, the Black Sea, Turkey, and these places. But it is an Orthodox nation, and we, we have to hope that they could you know, I think they have the ability to achieve a more neutral status if they return to their, if they return to a, if they return to orthodoxy as their identity and not some kind of anti-Russian flank. And we know that the NATO powers want to start some kind of second front without pulling in other powers. It's a very difficult surgery they're trying to perform. And at this point, a lot of people, we, we have Georgia, we have Belarus, we discussed that. 
and there's also Kazakhstan, which people forget that it was in. Well, it was that early 2022. Russia had to go in and really put down some stuff in Kazakhstan. But in general, Kazakhstan, the leadership has, while not necessarily embraced the West, they've definitely made moves to kind of dislocate themselves from direct Russian influence. But I think it's interesting. I want to get your thoughts on Kazakhstan, Dmitry. But you talked about Lukashenko and Belarus. Like, remember, like, before the early 2022 coup against Belarus, which was openly, you know, funded by the West and, and that it was very liberal as well. They, the Lukashenko was leaning more and more towards the West. Putin was trying to bring him back in, but Pompeo had gone to Belarus, promised Lukashenko oil at comparable competitive prices to the Russians, all this kind of stuff. And it seemed that Lukashenko was maybe willing to move that way, but ultimately the whole COVID thing came and Lukashenko became the worldwide anti-COVID hero and rejected vaccines and masks and all that kind of nonsense, even better than Russia did. And that, of course, turned the ire of Zog against him. But when all that started, like once they realized that was going to go down, they hit the color revolution hard, tried to get him out. And Lukashenko quickly realized, all right, that little game I'm done playing, calling on Putin again, returning to, uh, you know, white Russia needs to know its place here in greater Russia. And that's, it's kind of been the story ever since. And that that's like a domino effect that who knows that if they hadn't gone successfully, Russia might not have felt prepared to do the special military operation and to go into Ukraine. So we really, uh, in many ways, the U.S. foreign policy kind of bungled that one themselves in a lot of ways by bungling the and fumbling the Belarus bag. But uh, Kazakhstan is, uh, is, is, is another example. It's huge. In many ways, a lot of Russian nationalists are somewhat irredentists would view northern parts of Russified Kazakhstan as something that should already be incorporated into Russia. But the Russians very obviously don't want to be reclaiming territory on multiple different fronts. That would be a very bad, at least in their eyes, the international community and like the, the optics war, that would be a bad look and be a much easier way to get a get a unified global force to actually you know go in and balkanize your country. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on on what's going to happen there and what uh, what the machinations of of the enemy will will make happen on the second front issue. Yeah, Kazakhstan, of course, is greatly still dependent on Russia, and it's similar to how Bitcoin is coupled and pegged to the U.S. dollar, and and in fact, as the you know as the U.S. dollar moves in a certain way, so does Bitcoin, and all the other altcoins they move alongside Bitcoin. They're all interrelated, and they're they're not disconnected. So is Kazakhstan attached? to Russia in, in such an intimate way, perhaps, that many of many may not realize. I, I was listening to an interview of a, a prominent Kazakh economist, and he was saying that since the beginning of the SMO, McDonald's has completely shut down operations in Kazakhstan. Now, wh- wh- why is that? Well, because and is it because Kazakhs lack meat? Perhaps they can't make their burger patties or um, the meat for their Big Macs. But no, in, in fact, it's true. They actually do not have the industry. They do not have factories to make meat for their burgers. And in fact, so McDonald's had to completely shut down their operations because imports from Russia have stopped to have stopped coming to to Kazakhstan completely. And so Kazakhstan is really still finding itself in terms of in this new liberal, um, uh, independent democratic world order as, a, um, you know, they're still kind of very split. Its people are very divided. Uh, you know, there's a lot of failed projects, for example, the purchasing of Australian Angus uh, Angus cattle to make Angus beef and burgers. In fact, even though beef really isn't a staple of the Kazakh diet, so they purchased 
hundreds and thousands of these cows and these cows are not being eaten at all there's no demand for them meanwhile the average kazakh person really loves to eat chicken but they haven't purchased enough chicken to raise on farms so the entire country's economy is very chaotic and it's very much interrelated with russia imports and exports are affected to the point where even large corporations like mcdonald's really cannot operate in kazakhstan even though mcdonald's hasn't sanctioned kazakhstan at all but it just cannot operate there because of its relationship to Russia. Now, more on a, on a more serious note, Kazakh's, Kazakh politics are very much almost caste-based to the point where there are three main castes and they're geographically located. So the northern Kazakhstan is normally considered where the elites come from. So northern Kazakhs are the sort of uh, Brahmin of the Kazakh society, wh- whereas the southern Kazakhs are considered almost like the underclass and the central Kazakhs are somewhat of the middle class. They're very very kind of aesthetically outlined pyramid of Kazakh politics there. Now, the two Kazakhstan capitals as well have an interesting history because Kazakhification, just as Ukrainization occurred in Ukraine during the Soviet Union, so did Kazakhification occurred in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, the people of Kazakhstan, the Kazakhs, in themselves being nomadic throughout their entire thousand-year-old history since probably the times of Genghis Khan, have never built cities, uh, that, which was why there are no ruins, there are no ancient Kazakh capitals, because they always moved around in tent cities. Um, so they never really established themselves on any sort of geographical landscape. The Russians were the first to build one major fortress or city called Verny, which means loyal. Now, Verny was in the center, in the southern center of Kazakhstan, and this was the furthest most outpost of the Russian Empire in the Kazakh lands. Now, notice how Verny and Grozny sound very similar. It's because these are the two sister cities. Verny was the fortress of the Russian Tsars in Kazakhstan, while Grozny was the fortress of the Russian Tsars in the Caucasus Mountains. Now, of course, the capital of Chechnya, Grozny. Now, Verny was renamed to Almaty in the 90s, which Almaty, it's it's a bit weird. I'm not even sure what that name means necessarily. It's kind of like a made-up Kazakh word. No offense to Kazakh people, but they try to Kazakhify their own nation in a way, kind of making you, similar to how Ukrainians change the names of many of their cities. So the nation of Kazakhstan very much is still finding itself, hence their middle ground between countries such as Russia, China, the U.S., inviting businesses, inviting corporations from different superpowers around the world because they're still trying to, in one way, they're trying to disconnect themselves from Russia. On the other hand, as even the prominent Kazakh economists say, they really cannot disconnect themselves from Russia. They are attached via an umbilical cord. Their economy will completely crash if anything happens to Russia or if Russia even chooses to sanction them. So, And maybe this is a good thing in a way because Russia can depend on Kazakhstan as a certain loyal output as an outpost of loyalists or those who will not turn against russia because of their interdependence it's so so closely tied and the relationship is similar to that of belarus and russia which uh, belarus is much more friendly on a cultural level kazakhs are still trying to assert their independence uh, over russians now of course the kazakh uh, revolution which almost happened in uh uh, recently, uh, was put down by Russian peacekeeping forces sending, you know, sending in to assist the Kazakh police. But it does show that uh, the Kazakh, the Kazakh um, ruling class, really does not have that sort of a strong grasp, especially over the young population. Kaz- the Kazakh population is very young in general. I think the average median age is under thirty. So there's a lot of young, disenfranchised, jobless, workless, almost without any career prospects, young Kazakh people, men especially, who are very are keen on making themselves a career and you know they want to make something of themselves in life and the ruling class of course the elites don't want to give them any opportunities so there is a high chance of of course a possible color revolution in Kazakhstan in the future very that's why Russians are very keeping a very keen 
keen eye on that particular area on that landscape and frankly as i agree with you conrad we won't see a reconquest of kazakhstan so to speak but we may see future peacekeeping operations into the region russians need to very delicately handle it because you don't want to anger the locals especially anger the various different castes and tribes which exist there it's more about kind of organically bringing kazakhstan under russian influence slowly first through soft power and then through hard power as kazakhstani power um, as Kazakhstani politics are reduced to, you know, um, their sort of natural state, which is complete chaos, which, you know, that's why the land was never united. And even now, it's very, very much um, a disunited landscape. I think that's kind of the outlook on Kazakhstan, which is different from Belarus, which the Belarusian people, especially those around Minsk, have always been united in their Russian Orthodox identity. Uh, and they've always kind of, they've always seen themselves as different from their Lithuanian Polish allies. Uh, not allies, from enemies next door. Kazakhstan is an interesting place. If you remember, the uh, the Russia had to go in there as a CSTO operation, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is kind of a remnant. That's kind of the Soviet, the post-Soviet, the ex-Soviet Union states version of NATO. Which I think before the special military operation, Russia was kind of trying to maintain its relevance, and that was a lot of the point of the quick in and out Kazakhstan operation, which was quite successful, combined with what. The Kazakhstan color revolution attempt was like the least aesthetic color revolution attempt ever. So total failure on the people that were doing it. But I think the, the that attempt at reviving the CSTO kind of went by the wayside. Now that we've seen the whole Armenia-Azerbaijan thing kind of just collapse into, just into inanity, it seems that Russia is no longer, Russia is going to focus on its own priorities militarily and only focus on, you know, the CSTO when it directly involves the current fighting operation in the current situation. And that's when it comes to Kazakhstan and the cities, Astana, which has been changed a half dozen times, the name at least is like the most Masonic city ever. I think I may write an article about this and I promise you there's more articles coming. I keep saying I'll write articles. I've got like half of them drafted. I promise you it's they're, they're coming. We're we're getting things settled here. And now that we've got your support with the paid Substack, it's going to be even easier. But Astana, if you go, especially all the government buildings, the major corporations, there's just an overabundance of cubes surrounded by six-pointed stars, surrounded by squares and compasses and weird golden globes and, and astral signs all around this place. And this city was like built up on purpose as a capital, much in the way of like Brasilia or some of these other other cities that really built up a capital city for the purpose of of, of bringing in a political class so as to not have too much local influence of a, of a specific city, which is an interesting political idea in and of itself. But I think it's, it's, it's going to, it's interesting to watch, especially as Kazakhstan is going to be a, another a viewed Southern flank by both the enemies and those strategizing within Russia. It's important to recognize that there's clearly some overt occult influence as well as, of course, from my perspective, Kazakhstan was the space cap, was where all the all the space launches, quote unquote, you know, supposedly were within Russia. So, and all that. So we uh, we'll be watching closely. It's a very big. People forget this is the fifth largest country by area in the world. So that's right. And Kazakhstan's strategic location, of course, aligned geographically with between China and Russia. Give it that, and it's it's the second largest nation in the world in terms of uranium deposits so uranium of course used for both nuclear reactors which is probably the power source of the future as well as the great nuclear weapons everybody keeps talking about especially in geopolitics and foreign policy very key strategic area and russia will not be letting kazakhstan go under western influence and if anything 
if Kazakhstan does fall into chaos, I do see Russia moving its full force into into Kazakhstan in order in, in order to at least keep peace, similar to how you could say, and not in a negative sense, but similar to how the U.S. entered into Afghanistan to keep the poppy seed fields uh, occupied, for obviously for, for reasons of CIA um, CIA projects and with a nefarious purpose. But the U.S.'s goals in Afghanistan, even if they were negative, the Russia will do the same in Kazakhstan for purposes of securing natural resources and keeping the land in somewhat of a stable condition, because. That's essentially what I think the goals of the world powers will be. They know Kazakhstan is weak. Its military is really incompetent. It doesn't have any future large prospects, essentially. But it does have an incredibly rich, uh, nomadic, very distinct culture, as well as some of the resources. It's, they're really unmatched anywhere in the world. Even Siberia, in many ways, could equate to some of the resources Kazakhstan has. And Kazakhstan, in many ways, does kind of naturally flow into Siberia. So all this land is very much united and related Russia is very interested in Kazakhstan as well as the world powers, as Conrad just mentioned. And they have one of the hardest flags in the game, not going to deny it there. Their flag is extremely aesthetic. So with all of that, I mean, we're in Kazakhstan, maybe going south a little bit to Iran. We had a, some big news this week where China brokered the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, who have been, you know, kind of the two major warring powers in the Muslim world since, you know, I don't know anyone the post nine eleven world that's kind of been at the, at the latest that's been the that's been the game there, and we see them clash, clashing in Yemen with Iran obviously being the main funder of the Houthi rebels there. Saudi Arabia, of course, has generally been more supportive of Israel than all the uh, and haven't been involved in funding the Muslim extreme the Muslim opposition there that Iran does, like in Palestine and in Lebanon and those areas, and so this is big. And of course, Iran and Saudi Arabia also being two of the biggest oil producing powers in the world, and China buying from both of them now exclusively in Yuan and directly challenging the petrodollar, this is a big deal. And the U.S. is definitely running damage control. We see Blinken running off to Africa to try to have more influence there because he knows, you know, Russia's there too, militarily speaking, not on paper, but, you know, through Wagner PMC. And as China seems to be stepping directly into the global mediation world with a high-profile case like this. Obviously, we don't expect any Nobel Peace Prizes for Wang Yi, even if he may deserve one. But in spirit, they're challenging the U.S. in that regard. And Saudi Arabia seems willing to be actual diplomats and not, and not maintain their vassal status, even though I give MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, some credit because in his in his defense, like they know that they'd get stomped in a direct war with Iran, so you kind of stick with the U.S. there. But it seems that he recognizes that the U.S. and and Zog are a bigger civilizational threat than even perhaps certain military clashes with their Muslim neighbor. So I think I think this is this really can't be understated how big of a deal this is, especially on the economic side, as the U.S. experiences some of the largest bank crashes since 2008, and even in their history, which we're also going to be watching closely on the economic side. But China and Russia, of course, coming closer together only is going to be easier now that China is really... I mean, China and Russia almost compete for how much they can support Iran in the face of world sanctions, which I think is is very funny, which proves how... How much, how valuable Iran is, and how that you there are trump cards and you know natural geographical resources and cultural bastions that one can maintain to truly survive against like the full onslaught of of the globalist empire. 
That's right, and we see the president of China, Xi Jinping, meeting in person with the Iranian president. Of course, we pre- mentioned this on the previous episodes, greeting him personally, leading him into his personal cabinet to have a word, you know, through translations and things, really getting to know him. So China moving closer in the same month with both Iran as well as Russia. You know, Xi Jinping, of course, scheduling a... Um, scheduling a meeting with President Zelensky in order to discuss, I suppose, what would be some sort of peace agreements between him and Russia, and Xi Jinping also visiting Moscow next week. So in the span of one and a half months, we see Xi Jinping essentially putting, uh, I guess, spreading his influence throughout throughout the world, personally as the, personally getting involved, not just sending his foreign minister, but he himself as the president of the Chinese people, this um, billion-person, billion-person new sort of new Chinese empire kind of really getting involved. And it. what's interesting is that uh, we saw the same from Erdogan in early 2022 when he was trying to spread Turkish influence to the Ukrainian-Russian conflict and, in fact, not achieving anything. Not, none of the peace talks really got anywhere in Turkey. The prisoner exchanges were very limited. Nobody really res- nobody respected Erdogan as much, neither from Kiev nor from Moscow. But we ha- here we have Xi Jinping essentially taking the same role as this kind of middleman peacekeeper. And naturally, we spoke about on previous episodes Xi Jinping's um, or China's I guess China as a whole, its influence on the Ukrainian-Russian conflict and its interests. What can China get out of this? You know, could it be um, exports of weaponry and technology to Russia? Could it be exports of drones, um, humanitarian aid, perhaps to both Russia and Ukraine? There are benefits which China can gain, and of course, China probably looks out for itself first, as opposed to actually actually caring about the civilizational state of the Russian-Ukrainian relations or maybe some of the religious background issues or even possibly who the Donbass belongs to. So China perhaps thinks very slowly and very civilizationally, hence Xi Jinping, we see him almost pre-planning all of these great moves that he's making. And it'll be very interesting to see exactly what he achieves. My prediction and my prognosis is most likely Russia is so deeply committed in the Ukraine that there's nothing China can propose and can offer to Russia at this moment, especially when Russia has already given up so much in this trade with China. For example, Russia shares uh, sells Siberian gas to China at a very discounted rate already. So, when I see on Twitter sometimes that you know Chinese um, spokespersons they say, well, if Russia discounts its gas even more to China, perhaps China could provide Russia with more weapons and equipment. I don't think that's possible. Russia already discounts its gas by almost forty percent. All of its gas exports are incredibly cheap from Siberia to China. So these things must be considered. Russia also needs to get something out of this relationship. And I just don't see Xi Jinping offering anything significant to Putin, even any sort of perks on the Security Council in order to warrant a sort of premature peace agreement. But then again, Putin might also have these influences around him who want a peace agreement to, you know, to take place in order for Russian assets abroad to be unfrozen and for them to be returned back into the, the, the bank accounts of the Russian politicians and oligarchs. Because remember, Conrad, that's one of the things Putin did mention, that the amount of assets seized by Western powers and Western banks um, and Western special forces from funds held by Russians um, in overseas banks and overseas inv- investment funds equated to almost as much as the overall aid that was provided to Ukraine over the over the last year, which would be around 150 billion dollars in U.S. Uh, U.S. currency. So, again, uh, Xi Jinping most likely is just reaching out a hand, showing out his showing his diplomatic skill. But I'm not I'm not necessarily 
I don't think he will achieve anything, and I don't think he'll offer anything to Zelensky that Zelensky will take. Because remember, Zelensky's spoken to many world leaders at this point, not notwithstanding not Xi Jinping personally, and nobody has really offered Zelensky anything more than, say, weapons. So, Zelensky doesn't need much more. He, he just wants land, wants weapons, he wants Ukrainian supremacy over the landscape. Regarding China's, you know, shift towards Russia and against the West in this regard, they just appointed a new defense minister, the General Li Shangfu, who is literally under U.S. sanctions already, which I think is just a very explicit move, so showing that, yeah, from a defense perspective, from a, for, you know, from the perspective of our military, we're we're not taking into account our quote unquote, you know, relationship with the U.S. or our trade relationships with the U.S. What's important is is this broader shift against unipolarity here and that's what we're that's what we're going to be doing and i think as as Xi actually you know goes to russia and as he actually assumes his third term his third five-year term as president of china which is unprecedented honestly so far he has really cemented his power within the chinese communist party the cpc so we now see in a way i almost wonder if again I've said this before, China isn't necessarily a natural ally of Russia. The Sino-Soviet split really damaged relations, and there's just a lot of territorial disputes in the East that either country are both like very, uh, you know, they recognize as important. So that, that, that that's always going to be a point of tension there. But Xi himself is, you know, he's very intellectual. I think he himself has a civilizational perspective, and he's he's been to these other countries, and he knows that the he fundamentally understands that the leadership in the West have no respect for their own traditions and their own culture. He knows them better than them. He's 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 quite a, quite a red person. He speaks many different languages, and I think now he realized. And I think the the move of China to Russia might be a product of the of the Jinpingization of uh, of, uh, of of the Communist Party of China, and that I think that's a, that's that's a good thing in the sense that that means that Chinese society and the government are more united around a civilizational perspective as opposed to either a more, you know, technological new world order perspective, which is still always a danger from China or a, you know, a revanchist uh, society that wants to even fight Russia as it's, as it's perceived, you know, ethnic or religious adversary due to other historical grievances. So I think generally speaking, it's a positive development there. And one more quick fact, just before we move on, move away from Asia and Central Asia, is that the current president of Kazakhstan, uh, Kasim Takayev, actually speaks fluent uh, Mandarin. So whenever he communicates with Xi Jinping, it has been noticed that unlike the previous Kazakhstan president, he speaks in fluent Chinese. And they, well, this is a relationship that no other real... Um, I guess foreign foreign leader really has of Xi Jinping. So again, the relationship between Kazakhstan and China is also instrumental, and the uh, President Takayev's personal relationship of Xi Jinping is incredibly interesting to watch. Again, as Kazakhstan attempts to disassociate itself away from Russia and kind of find new allies in the world, uh, one of them, of course, maybe China, uh, the other one being the United States, naturally. Now, further developments in, of course, the Asian uh, Middle Eastern region are are of course. Coming from Turkey, where which names an, uh, an official opposition leader, uh, Kilik Daroglu, as a joint challenger to Erdogan, as BBC.com news reports. Now, Kilik Daroglu is this uh, elderly um, Kamalist left wing, you can say center left oppositionary leader, who is supposed to actually present himself against Erdogan in June of 2023 in the upcoming Turkish elections. Kilik Daroglu, what's interesting about him is that he 
not only does he meet the criteria for this uh, Turkish sort of, as David described, this Turkish drive for sovereignty and national identity, but he also adheres to the to the principles provided by NATO and by these Western forces. So he is a bit more liberal than, say, Erdogan is. And in fact, there is that risk, which we spoke about with David Erhan on our Turkish stream, which everyone should check out, that this next oppositionary leader, at this point, we didn't know it was Kilik Daroglu, but now we do know Kemal Kilik Daroglu has this risk of actually pushing Turkey into this Western coalition against against Russia in the Ukrainian conflict. Now, one of the greatest perks he has against against his oppositionary um, uh, op opposition uh, Erdogan is the fact that the earthquake, of course, has taken so many thousands of lives. And this he is already using, actually, uh, on, on his first, I guess, inaugural speech as the leader of the opposition. He's already mentioning the fact that the horrendous earthquake, um, he doesn't blame it essentially in Erdogan, but he does say the failures of the previous administration do bring about these particular causes. He does say that you know, we can actually build and strengthen Turkey in a better state. And so we do have we do have this particular development in Turkey. Now, the implications are huge because uh, on one hand, on one hand, he's a weaker, he's a weaker personality in Erdogan. Me and Conrad have, you know, praised, praised Erdogan over the over the last few episodes as this really po um, popular as well as powerful and effective politician. Kilik Daroglu, uh, really a kind of a rundown almost a bit, maybe a bit too old for politics character, possibly a backbencher of sorts on the Turkish parliament, not really not really a suitable front figure in order to oppose Erdogan. But Erdogan may lose only on the basis of the fact that of his role of the recent earthquake, as well as his failure to kind of reestablish himself as this, um, as a as a leading person in, uh, you know, in, in, in Turkish foreign policy, especially in Syria and in Ukraine. Erdogan has taken a very neutral position. And in fact, I think a lot of Turkish nationalists are questioning why exactly Erdogan hasn't moved further into Syria, why Erdogan hasn't pushed Turkish influences on, say, the Balkans or even in Ukraine. Really, Erdogan has taken a very conservative stance, and this could be critiqued by his oppositionary leaders. In our last episode, we talked about how Okilik Draglu was picked as, as the candidate, but he was in a not very stable position. It was kind of the best case scenario for Erdogan, considering he was the least popular, as Dimitri said, least charismatic, this kind of backbencher candidate. He's, again, he's the most left-wing of the candidates that could have been put forward, and Turkey's not a particularly left-wing society. He's the most Americanist, I guess you could say, of all of them, even though none of them are Americanists themselves, but he is the most in that direction. But what's changed this week was that right when he was initially announced, the Nationalist Opposition Party immediately dropped out and was like, no, we're not supporting him for the presidency. But in this past week, they've rejoined. He's completely re-strengthened this coalition. And even just talking to David about it, he seems surprised that this happened so quickly. So as far as I can tell, I think the powers that be and the NATO American bloc is really, really trying to get behind him and the opposition here to get Erdogan out in this upcoming election. And again, this is the kind of thing that really is going to push forward some of the prophecies that we've been talking about. Again, it, a lot of people would say they didn't, they couldn't see how, you know, Turkey could move more towards NATO or something like this could happen that could have a provocation like this. Yet here we are. Suddenly, Turkish politics has really changed to where something that people would not have assumed that Kilik Draglu, of all people, would have a good chance of defeating Erdogan. But here, but one harp-inspired earthquake and some NATO intervention later, and here we are. So I think I think people need to realize how quickly the times are changing. And while over a few months period, nothing may really happen, you may wake up one weekend and 
six years of history will happen before your very eyes. So I think, like I say, we live in very interesting times here. But we'll be watching the Turkish election closely, of course. We're probably going to have our first live stream on the World War Now YouTube channel in the next few weeks with David talking about the Turkish election. If not a little bit before the election itself, definitely actually live streaming the election itself, keeping up with the outcome, commenting on it. And, and the reaction and the in the way that we know how not just looking at global news and headlines but at the at the more interesting kind of niche spiritual publications and and, and corners of the internet but with all of that there are some uh, very unfortunate things happening in ukraine as we all know people are dying the soldiers is always a tragedy but even the persecution continues to get worse we've said it before it continues to ramp up but now even the uh, Kiev cave, Petros Caves Monastery, even the lower monastery, which the uh, the canonical church had been given access to this time, they're now being evicted. Zelensky has come out with a full-throated condemnation of the canonical church about nonsense about being spiritually independent in Ukraine and everything. And there have been, there's been some news about what Strelkov was told by some monks about some of these places at Sviatogorsk. And it seems that as... The Russian line continues to push forward, and the diplomatic solutions actually kind of fade into the distance, according to Peskov, at least. There is the spiritual battle continues to ramp up even more. Yeah, it, it of course seems that Zelensky, um, he wasn't fulfilled enough by simply taking over the large cathedrals in the Kiev Pucharsk Lavra, you know, simply uh, throwing out those concerts, you know, staging them turning them into essentially museums similar to the Hagia Sophia at one point, kind of definitely desecrating these uh, great holy sites of the Ukrainian church and the Russian Orthodox Church in total and the entire Orthodox Church, for that matter, one of the holiest places on earth, I'd say, and one of the um, bastions of the Theotokos, as the Orthodox tradition calls them. But the lower, now the lower church, which also contains within itself some of the some of the caves, the lower monastery of the Kiev Picharsk Lavra, is also which which where all the monks actually live and all the all the quarters where um all of the relics are of the saints. And we're talking about about seventy to seventy five relics of saints are being held in these caves. The Ukrainian Minister of Culture actually came out just a day ago on the 13th of March and mentioned very explicitly that these relics belong in a museum and these relics are not being looked after by the pro-Russian clergyman of the Kiev Picharsk Monastery. So we see this sort of rhetoric come out now. It's very explicit, very um, disgusting, very hurtful and painful to hear to the Orthodox ear. But I guess to, to all Christians, it's quite offensive because relics are there to be venerated, not kept in museums under you know special containment containment conditions and protocols. Zelensky naturally uh, openly has called the Russian church collaborators of the terrorist regime, the terrorist regime being Russia, and he has openly stated that, as Conrad said, he, they, the Ukrainian government will be kicking the... Uh, kicking, uh, as in literally expelling, the Russian Orthodox Church of Ukraine out of the monastery by the end of March of 2023. So we are waiting for the reaction of the, I guess, of all the faithful in Ukraine. How will they in particular take these news? Will they allow their holiest site in, in, the, entire, in, in the entirety of the Ukrainian lands to be desecrated and for these relics to be taken, possibly taken into museums, possibly moved, lost, taken for examination? Will they allow this to happen or will they actually rise up and prevent uh, the Ukrainian government from seizing these holy sites? Again, uh, the pressure is on the Ukrainian people, not so much the Russians, who actually do not control Kiev at this point and really have no say. Patriot Kirill 
um, did appeal to the United Nations as well as all these other Orthodox jurisdictions around the world, Jerusalem, the Ecumenical Patriarchate, um, Greece, the Amer American Orthodox Church, Antioch, Georgia, Serbia. He did appeal to everyone asking them for assistance. Can anyone, uh, you know, can anyone on our behalf speak to these Ukrainian demonic politicians actually talk them out of this act? But no, it seems like Zelensky and his politicians have made up their mind and they're going to take the key of caves. They're going to take the relics and uh, attack this once uh, once great and venerated holy site from the Orthodox Church. It's uh, very much very apocalyptic, but it's not something we haven't seen before, especially during the communist persecutions. And I just want to reiterate, we've talked about the prophecies of St. Lawrence of Chernigov before, but I just want to read his exact words. It's been a few episodes, and this is this is big. I mean, this is the, the gem of all of Ukraine. You know, we have Sviatogorsk, which we're going to talk about in a sec, the Pearl of Donbass, but, you know, Kiev Pochai, the Kiev Caves, these are... These are the the earliest hearts of you know the Russian Orthodox spirit of the new of the new Christian of the new of the second the third Rome the second Christian Rome. This is you know this is these are these are key. And Saint Lawrence he he said when a little freedom appears when the churches and monasteries are being opened and restored then all false teaching will come out and the demons and secret atheists parentheses Catholics Uniates Ukrainians self ordained and others will fiercely take up arms against the Orthodox Russian Church, its unity and its conciliar nature. A godless authority will support these heretics, and therefore they will take churches away from the Orthodox and slaughter the faithful. Then the Metropolitan of Kiev, not worthy of the name, together with his like-minded hierarchs and priests, will strongly shake the Russian Church. The whole world will be amazed at his lawlessness and will be frightened. He himself will go off into eternal perdition like Judas. And I mean, I read this prophecy as being regarding the schismatics, even in many ways, possibly Zelensky himself, I think could be, I think that could be kind of the world stage, what it's referencing, what we might be seeing in the future. And we, it would be following a constant pattern of, you know, U.S. proxies being turned on by their benefactors once their usefulness has, has dried up. But yeah, no, the bodies, I mean, this kind of stuff about relocating to museums and this kind of stuff, this is the kind of stuff that the Soviets would use as a pretext to then desecrate these places and have the the secular goblins that inhabit the institutions that would enforce these laws, you know, commit all sorts of blasphemies. But we, we've heard from Russians with Attitude has been talking about this. I believe it was in December of 22, there was murmurings of this, that Strelkov has come out talking, Igor Strelkov, you know, the, the hero of the early Donbass revolutions and, you know, now controversial Kremlin critic. He said some things about some, that what some monks from Sviatogorsk told him about these persecutions and, and what, what not. Yeah, so Strelkov passes on to us in the late 22 <clears throat> during an interview um, online on YouTube, actually, while he was still stationed in Moscow. He says that in 2014, um, he was approached by some elder monks during his stay at the Svetogorsk Monastery. This is after the Maidan, while he was the defense minister of Donetsk. So this was Strelkov's main role, uh, I guess, during the defense of Donetsk against Poroshenko and his sort of encroachment, encroachment upon the Donbass republics. Um, and Strelkov was great friends of a lot of uh, Svetogorsk monks. And of course, perhaps at one point, an elder approached him and told him of this prophecy that once a, year, a half a year, and this prophecy goes as such, half a year after the heretics take over the Kiev Picharsk Lavra and the caves, uh, six months will pass and Russia will reunite with Ukraine as it was before. And Kiev would be liberated from not just the heretics, but also all outside forces. And Strelkov passes this, I suppose, this oral, verbal prophecy of clairvoyance onto us 
through, I guess, this video interview, through a YouTube video, it's interesting. We spoke about the fact that prophecies in many ways, Orthodox prophecies aren't peer-reviewed. They aren't published in journals. They aren't necessarily given over to us Orthodox Christians in um, some sort of written form. And, and mostly it's usually verbal um, clairvoyant sayings of saints, such as uh, we mentioned Elder Paisios' prophecies about Turkey, were given to his disciples as well as some of the novices and people visiting him as spiritual children. And the same thing here. So uh, Stilkov, no doubt, had had a priest confessor in the Svetogorsk Lavra Monastery, which is mainly to kind of emphasize, Svetogorsk Lavra is the third largest monastery in Ukraine, and it's probably the fifth largest monastery in Ukraine and Russia combined. It's one of the biggest monasteries in all of Eastern Europe. It's very, very important. But and it's located right on the border of Russia and and uh, sort of Russia, Ukraine, and Donbass. So right in that key area where a lot of fighting is going on. We know, we know, unfortunately, news that over the last eight years, many priests and monks have actually died from shellings um, in that area. It's it's really it's very much in the heart of the the fire and the, and the fight at the moment. Now, more evidence that Stilkov has, has had close relations with Svetogorsk Lavra is, of course, comes from his interview of one of the most notable priests in the Russian Orthodox Church and the now deceased Father Sevalid Chaplin. Father Sevalid Chaplin interviewed Stilkov in 2018 in October. Most of you, those in the Orthodox Church, especially the Russian Orthodox Church, would remember Father Sevalid as one of the more prominent spokespersons of the Moscow Patriarchate, especially as the he was the head of the Synodal Department of Cooperation of Church and Society. Uh, between 2009 and 2015 so he would appear on a lot of talk shows on russian tvs he would debate atheists he would um you know critique uh, feminists about abortion he would speak he had this very deep voice he would he'd be very opinionated and he would speak clearly about orthodox conservative conservatism and uh orthodox ideas morality morality and ethics now if Sevalid was Father Sevalid was fortunate enough to interview Stilkov, and they spoke very clearly about Russian civilization, the fight in the Donbass, about orthodoxy in those regions. And Stilkov told him that a lot of his personal bodyguard, Stilkov's bodyguards, while he was the Minister of Defense of Donetsk, were actually former novices or people, veterans, who actually were staying in the Svetogorsk Lavra, who, like spiritual children of Svetogorsk elders and Svetogorsk monks and hierarch monks. And he said even that one of his uh, one of his chiefs of staff as the minister of defense was a very notable layman from the Svetogorsk monastery. He didn't name who it was, but he was probably a member of the uh, one of the Svetogorsk um, lady council there, probably one of the church uh, you know uh, brotherhood there. You know, so essentially, Stilkov's Igor Stilkov's connection to the Lavra and to Russian Orthodoxy in the Donbass is very much uh, is very clear. It's very very evidenced, even with his interviews with priests. And there's no there's no real reason to doubt this particular um, clairvoyant prophecy he received from the Orthodox elder. At least at this point, it doesn't contradict the teachings. If anything, as the prophecy Conrad just read from Saint Lawrence of Chernigov, it kind of just doubles down on the sayings of previous great saints, as well as recent elders, such as Elder Zasima of Donbass. So uh, we have this reality, and now that the Kiev caves, caves are going to be taken by the end of March, we're going to wait you know, several months and see, and may God's will be done, I suppose. That's what we can do as Orthodox Christians. We can pray for God to rid us of this uh, you know, great tormentor in the face of Zelensky and his uh, criminal government. Now, when you talk about Elder Zosima of Kiev, and he talked about how all thrashings from Kiev will begin the mother of Russian cities with the cradle of holy Russia. And from there, it will go all over the Russian land. Russia will not pass. There will be unrest all around. But Russia will stand, and there will be even greater grace. So I think we can, we can hope for things like that. But 
I know people might call us out for, you know, clickbaiting on our last video about Bakhmut and everything. And for the historical record, we're keeping it. We know it's going to, you know, happen within the general time frame. But yeah, Ukraine seems to have really doubled down. Zelensky seems to want to even increase the, you know, demonic sacrifice of, of white Christians at his altar in this front here, which is a real tragedy. And, you know, Prigozhin is making more videos. It seems they're, they're getting closer and closer. You know, they're well into Bakhmut itself. But it seems that they're that the Ukrainians are dumping more and more troops in. And I don't know if this means that they've gotten some word from behind the scenes that support is about to dry up or that there's about to be some big shuffles in leadership. But I, I'm having a bit of trouble deducing the strategy on their part. But maybe you can help me a little bit. Yeah, it seems like strategy-wise, Ukraine is simply sending its forces, which are now numbered in the thousands. Prigozhin passed on to us a week ago that the, the Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut have increased between by between ten and 20,000 troops just in the last week and a half, which is an insane amount, especially with new, new people actually entering the city. There is only one road leading into Bakhmut. This is the Western Road, which Ukrainians are taking, and they're simply sending troops. And where are they sending them? To the outskirts? No, right into the center to push back against the Russians who have a concave sort of position around bombarding the Ukrainian held positions with very um, accurately hitting artillery. And, you know, thousands of hundreds of Ukrainians are dying. The question is, why exactly are they being sent to this position? Why is Bakhmut not being surrendered by Zelensky? It does seem like a certain ritual sacrifice, perhaps. Maybe it's a way of uh, the Satanists to sort of, you know, mock the fact that we're going through Great Lent, or maybe there is a different certain feast days are going on and other um, more devious traditions and religions around the world, and they're kind of trying to align certain dates and sacrifices to that. I'm not going to go into too much detail about that, but uh, Bakhmut is still standing, and only thanks to the fact that the Ukrainians are throwing hundreds and thousands of more troops into the fray, which isn't a good look neither for them nor for even Western media at the moment, like the Washington Journal, uh, Washington Post, that is, recently said that, well, uh, Ukraine is short of skilled troops and ammunition as losses and pessimism are mounting, but they're still sending more troops to Bakhmut. They're still doubling down. Zelensky and the Minister of Defense of Ukraine actually have said that, no, Bakhmut will not fall. And even though it's not important, we will not let it fall to the Russians. So they're adamant at actually not surrendering it, which frankly goes against all predictions. Even Prigozhin himself said two weeks ago that by March, uh, Bakhmut would have fallen, but in fact, it still hasn't fallen yet. And it's still holding. Um, Evgeny Prigozhin, kudos to him for his bravery, and even I'm not sure if he's an Orthodox Christian, but he does seem to have faith in the in the might of you know uh, the Russian God and Russian weapons and Orthodoxy, and the fact that most of his troops are Orthodox and they're quite strong in their faith because he's not he's actually right on the outskirts of the city. He's not typing and giving these interviews from the some cozy apartment in Moscow or from overseas. He's actually right on the outskirts of Bakhmut, releasing videos. He's always wearing a, wearing a helmet, always wearing Kevlar protection, but he's giving front front you know front and center interviews, answering questions, uh, giving updates on the situation of his troops uh, located in Bakhmut. So very commendable for him, at least at this point. He wasn't a very likable character pri prior to the special military operation in terms of some of his previous actions. And he wasn't the most, uh, you know, him not being an explicit Christian, I, I guess, and not really being a, a conservative, uh, a person who supports conservatism in Russia, but just being this outspoken oligarch has um, not really not really given him much sympathy amongst, say, Russian, the Russian right wing or Russian Orthodox conservatives in Russia. But recently, his uh, 
his duty to the Russian Federation alongside Wagner has increased his reputation to to the point where I hope he continues on this path and it's it's incredibly commendable what he has been doing that's for sure and of course his bravery shows him just being right there where the conflict is occurring is uh, very noteworthy. We know he's had his like beef with Strelkov, but I think Strelkov coming out and talking about this prophecy at this time actually really like it shows he's he hasn't been one to talk about future Russian success. He's really just been criticizing the whole strategy and saying that the wrong people are in charge of the operation. But if he's saying that about some six month timeline of getting of of some major change, I think once Bakhmut, once it seems that Russia unfortunately has to clear out possibly tens of thousands of, of young people's lives to take back mood. That will be, that will mark a serious demilitarization and demoralization for Ukraine that we might see some rapid, some rapid shifts once this is all said and done. Although it seems that Ukraine is wants to, wants to fight this out for a very extended period of time, which is, is truly tragic. And we can hope that maybe in the next few days we see a change of heart there, but, and maybe, oh, maybe Xi will whisper some wisdom into we whisper some Chinese proverbs and fortune cookie sayings into into Zelensky's ear, and he'll come to come to see the light there. We can hope, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Um, naturally, the way the media reacts to the actions ongoing in Bakhmut is very interesting because it really, I think, even you notice probably Conrad in American media, it really has uh, the Ukrainian war has been pushed over the last 12 months as something that Ukraine has been winning and something that Ukraine has been on top of. And only recently has the media recanted certain statements and uh, gone against their own previous um, proclamations that, hey, uh, Ukraine is actually not doing too well. There's a shortage of this and a shortage of that. And in fact, the city of Bakhmut, even if it does fall, it doesn't mean anything to us, but we're going to commit hundreds of forces anyway. It's very tragic. It's almost as if the media is playing, I mean, by media, I mean the mainstream big media companies, especially in the West, are playing this game of, well, it's simply a story we have to push based on what we're told from abroad and, you know, from, from these foreign intelligence agencies as well as, you know, domestic agencies. And we don't really have an objective opinion. We won't go report on the ground. We'll we'll just give this um, already preset opinion on on the uh, on what's happening there. And you know this uh, prop, this propaganda war uh, it it really is something uh, quite explicit. There could probably be studies and PhDs written on it in, well into the future, especially how the media shifts and changes its opinions. Notwithstanding, uh, unfortunately. I can't say the same for a lot of Russian liberal media, which claims to be unbiased because it also, you know, and we're talking about media from people such as Navalny and some of his folks, they're really, they're, their pro-Ukrainian attitudes do not paint an objective journalistic opinion either. They claim that Russia Today and companies such as, such, such as Sargrad and Taz and, and state-sponsored Russian media are perhaps, un, you know, perhaps biased and don't portray an accurate picture of what's happening in the Ukraine, but neither do they, neither do these independent, um, Doge TV, Medusa, um, Navalny's, uh, various YouTube channels, they don't actually give an unbiased opinion either, so no one's really objective here, and I don't think anybody's giving an objective opinion except, you know, everyone seems to be giving an, an opinion coming from a certain perspective, including me and yourself, like, we do come from a very orthodox perspective, which I think is the right way to go about it. Oh, it's. Uh, I think you'll want to tell us a bit about the Oscars this weekend before we talk a little bit about the uh, a few more things in the church and then wrap things up. But when it comes to Medusa and some of these articles, I, I remember being in college and we were doing reports on media outlets, and we had to. It was in, I was in some journalism class and I had to write a report about like a hero in journalism or something. I think I picked Tom Wolf or something because I could talk about like the Jewish mafia running like the black grievance racial grievance organization in. 
in New York at the time, so I just wanted to talk about that in front of my liberal female class. But this girl did her wanted to do hers on Masha Kessin and talk about Medusa. And like it was it, oh, and Masha Kessin is just this disgusting goblin who like couldn't like hide the fact that she's just an operative propagandist if she tried. And the fact and I, I just think it's funny that people eat all that stuff up because it's 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 also just like poorly made. The writing is bad. You know, I've I've researched all these things. So the Russian fifth column always makes me laugh, especially the ones that like try to that that basically exist for like Westerners to read and be like, wow, I can picture some like little girl in in in, in Russia secretly reading this, hiding from Putler, and it's like, yeah, it's 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 kind of like it's like a fan fiction for for people. But you know, we saw at the Oscars, which I didn't watch. My opinion, of course, the last good Oscars was 2014, which is probably too late for some people. But those are some good some good movies were nominated that year, but. Dimitri, what what happened this time? Yeah, so the film titled Navalny, of course, won the Oscar for the best documentary feature film. And, of course, the film was about Alexei Navalny, the the most prominent liberal center-left Russian uh, oppositionary leader who uh, run for the pre- ran for the presidency, presidency, ran for the mayorship of Moscow at one point, was a very prominent corruption investigator as well as liberal politician in, in the Russian media and in the Russian landscape. Perhaps he's usually called this uh, very enigmatic uh, main oppositionary leader to Putin. Now, the numbers don't really pan out, but online he's incredibly popular. His channels, uh, of course, the algorithm somehow um, silently assists him in generating millions of views. And, of course, this documentary kind of points to the fact that, hey, the Western uh, powers that be, Hollywood itself, the Oscars, they do appreciate this character of Alexei Navalny, who's currently um, in prison in Russia for breaking uh, civil commercial law and also tax evasion, things of this nature. He hasn't committed treason, so to speak, but Navalny has allegedly circumvented certain Russian civil regulations. So he's actually sitting is sitting out his prison sentence, which I think he has about about four to five years to go, which is a pretty long sentence for a commercial crime, to be to be frank. Now, Alexei Navalny, one of the great mistakes I think he's made throughout his political career is his uh, kind of disassociation from Christianity and orthodoxy. Russia, and he understands himself on paper, he's an orthodox Christian, and he even claims to be a practicing orthodox Christian. But we never saw him appeal to Christianity or orthodoxy or anything of this of this sort in any of his videos, documentaries, or books or articles. He's always talking about liberal values, democratic values, and it's probably similar to liberal oppositions, oppositionary leaders in countries like Georgia, Belarus, Ukraine. You never see them, despite being orthodox on paper, you never, never see them appeal to orthodoxy. Why? It's because they would push away from all their liberal Western sponsors abroad. And this appears as incredibly disingenuous to Russian viewers who would maybe like the side of Navalny as a certain oppositionary leader in Russia or perhaps a certain form of accountability to United Russia. But they can't do that because simply he comes off as this anti-Orthodox, this anti-Christian spokesperson. But not anti-Christian for the fact of it, but the fact that he associates with anti-Christian forces does increase this view this position of him uh at least in the eyes of the russian public and it's really a bit disgusting i could compare him perhaps to another prisoner of recent times you may have heard of andrew tate of course being held in romanian prison and being investigated for um crimes of human trafficking things of this nature now andrew tate of course uh, proclaiming himself to be a muslim the first thing he does when he goes to prison he asks for a quran to be delivered to his cell and he walks out of every court hearing holding the quran in hand and he gives off this appeal this image that hey he's a very pious muslim and that he's being oppressed for his religious views navalny even though 
yet perhaps perhaps Andrew Tate is you know he's he's not a Christian, but he at least attempts to kind of use Islam as a certain tool of of, of garnering sympathy. Navalny has never appealed to orthodoxy, even despite sitting in prison for you know um, for many years now at this point and many more years. He's never appealed to the Orthodox Church, and this is really mysterious to me. It's almost as if his sponsors told him explicitly that you may be baptized, you may be a Christian, but you never appeal to orthodoxy. And his documentary Navalny, which won the Oscar does not speak about his Christianity at all, which I think is a huge red flag. And in fact, it kind of, it, it took away any sympathy I had for him as a certain person. Of course, I sympathize for his, for his family and such while he's sitting in prison, but that's besides the fact he's, uh, the anti-Christian people he associates with is very suspicious and it's a huge red flag, I think, in public relations. Well, I think it just proves that there's fundamentally no like grassroots Christian opposition to like the quote-unquote Putin regime. And that's not to say that Putin doesn't do things that sometimes go against the interests of the Orthodox population, but to work to fundamentally work for regime change in Russia is to be against the Russian people at this point. We, we know what that would lead to. We know the, the looting and the, and the chaos and the secularization that would come. So Navalny not embracing that isn't a surprise in the sense that there's fundamentally no no market for this revolutionary Christendom here inside of Russia to overthrow, you know, the government and implement, you know, a more liberal democracy or whatever they, you know, they fundamentally want. But in many ways, we've seen more calls for, you know, as the church in Ukraine gets persecuted, people want perhaps Russia to give the canonical church full autocephaly. But to people saying that, I think I think that's ridiculous at this point because the OCU will always exist. It's not like the pe- like it's not like there won't still be demands for them to go to communion with them. The EP has already sealed that deal, and 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 Epiphany and the people involved are well embedded into the you know Ukrainian apparatus at this point. They're not just going to go quietly. So appeasement at this point is completely ridiculous. And again, maybe this is again people think this sounds ridiculous or or whatever, but the, the fundamental only conclusion. And the, the only way to really resolve this is for as much territory as possible to be taken away from the current Antichrist regime so that the people involved in the ecclesial situation can, can, be, can be simplified in that way so that, you know, there's less, you know, it, it's, it's a complicated thing to deal with jurisdictions and property and territories. That's a, that's a way the Russians can kind of just take care of it in a simple way. Let's put it that way. Yeah, of course, the, the only way these schismatics which, who receive aid um, who receive uh, promotion, who receive all kinds of perks from anti-Christian sources from abroad can be dealt with properly is if the majority of Ukraine is liberated by the Russian Federation from the current oppressors and the people actually uh, in power in in Kiev. Now, this includes, of course, assistance to the current canonical Ukrainian church, but also sorting out exactly which churches belong to which particular parish, council, again, as Connor had mentioned, real estate, which churches are being leased, which churches are being purchased, which monasteries, you know, because some, some churches actually are being leased or at least were purchased by units from Orthodox folks in the during the Soviet Union. And uh, legally speaking, they are, even though they're Orthodox church, or churches, or at one point they were Orthodox churches, they're now being held and Catholic worship is being committed in them. Now, all this thing, all of the, all of this needs to be sorted out eventually, and the only way to do that would be under a Russian jurisdiction and on Russian 
a political administration with the Russian legal code being enforced because seemingly under the Ukrainian Ukrainian government nothing's things really been fixed. In fact things have gotten worse with this um uprising of Metropol this false metropolitan epiphany and his false church. I do agree with Conrad that there there is no direct evidence that an autocephaly of the of the Ukrainian church. Now we're speaking about Metropolitan Onufri's uh Ukrainian church with its forty five to fifty bishops could bring about any sort of any sort of benefit to the Ukrainian Orthodox people. In fact, there's no there's no evidence anywhere that uh, autocephaly of any sort or even more autonomous rights to the Ukrainians, and this we're talking autonomy away from Russia, away from the Russian Moscow Patriarchate, would improve the state of Orthodox Christians there because. As Conrad said, Epiphany is not going to go anywhere. The persecution is not going to suddenly stop. There's no evidence that it will stop because the persecution is not just being promoted by pro-Ukrainian forces, but by anti-Christian forces from abroad. These people are not interested in simple, sole Ukrainianization. Their goals are more far-reaching. They want to divide Russia. They want to go against the idea of Holy Rus, against the idea of Third Rome. They don't want a Russian empire to be re-established in its, not imperialistic, but it's in its orthodox sort of form, which holds back evil. And as Apostle Paul speaks about in Second Thessalonians, they do not want that to, to occur. What the Russian, what the Rokor spoke about at the council in 1981, they do not want that to return back to the Ukrainian lands. They want Ukraine to be divided from Russia. And that seems to be the overarching goal here. Now, what autonomy or autocephaly gives to the to the right to the rightful Ukrainian Church at this point, I'm not too sure. But at this moment, Zelensky seems to be ignoring Anufri completely. Um, I'm sure you've seen the interviews, Conrad, where essentially Metropolitan Anufri is speaking to Poroshenko, to Zelensky, not just interviews, but even photo shoots where he's visiting them and he's telling these Ukrainian presidents, "Can you guys stop bombarding Donetsk? Um, can we please uh, find peace? Can we have peace talks?" And they simply ignore him. They say, "Yes, yes, of course, Father. Like, don't worry about it. We'll sort it out." And the eight-year conflict now going on to nine years has continued regardless. They do not care about Metropolitan Onufri's opinions. He's simply a pawn in their game against greater orthodoxy. No, it's a, it's a tragedy, and we hope that there's no... You know, we hope that once... We hope that internal issues, once more territory is ultimately taken, are, are minimal in that regard. But we're probably about to wrap this up here. We want to encourage everybody to check out episode two of Ether Hour we put out this week. It's about the czars before St. Nicholas II that have not been canonized yet. Paul I, Nicholas I, Alexander I, Alexander II, Alexander III. And I've, I've always thought, you know, maybe the new czar will have to, will be Paul II. All the other firsts got, got the second. Maybe the new czar will take, will be Paul II. And we'll, maybe we'll talk about that in our next episode. But be sure to watch that. Episode two and episode three will be coming later this week. Dimitri, if you maybe want to give a bit of a sneak preview as to what some of the people we may be talking about, and then we'll wrap things up and do the plugs and wish everyone a good night. Yes, on episode three, we'll speak about just the nature of um, some of the uncanonized saints and their relationships to, to in the Orthodox relationship to satanic murder of saints, which of course occurs in the case of um, future Saint Joseph Munoz of South America uh, and Montreal, as well as the Optina the Optina Monastery saints who were also killed on, on Easter in the 90s, and some of these other saints and how these events were perpetrated by the by the forces were kind of rallied against orthodoxy throughout time, but also explicitly coming out into the into the forefront in the 1990s. Some of this, this third episode will discuss these 
cases in depth and it will get a bit dark but it also will kind of show you that the forces of darkness in this world are even if they martyr our saints are of course powerless to do anything against greater orthodoxy martyrdom is a victory for the church not something that you know uh we really hold as a loss as orthodox christians like sure like sure you may have caused some temporary distress in a community or a monastery but the world gained powerful intercessors before god so checkmate atheists libtards satanists pooping and seething but we are going to talk about that it'll be our third episode it'll probably be i guess part three and the final part of i guess a series that has been not yet canonized saints so for episode four maybe expect a bit of a change of direction but i think it's been a great a great way to start i've really been enjoying those episodes yeah a lot of detailed accounts and a lot of um summarizing and succinctly but uh, giving you guys in a verbal form some of these accounts which perhaps are not well written about or not well known at least in the orthodox internet space which need to be out there because these saints will be canonized in the future and let them not catch you by surprise and perhaps you can be some of the first christians to begin venerating these great people in order for you know the church to eventually canonize them broad veneration is required and needs to be organic and natural that's mainly what these three episodes are about the future episodes are scheduled to be even more exciting there are some great ideas me and conrad have been pushing and reading up on sources and there's some really good information out there we of course have, have very broad interests in the geopolitical um orthodox eschatological fields as well as uh relating to history and politics naturally so there's a lot to speak about there's plenty enough to go around if you have any feedback or ideas or things that you'd want to hear about specifically in relation to orthodoxy geopolitics world history um the, the political sphere maybe from an orthodox perspective do let us know in the comments we will respond and we'll uh, perhaps take some some of this advice on board of course we want to thank everybody who has signed up for the paid it means a lot that you would financially support everything we do here for those that don't know we've got seven dollars a month if you want to get access to everything else, all the exclusive content, uh, there will be episodes of Ether Hour that are, uh, of course, public. And then that week we will have a segment of that episode of World War Now will be for the paid subscribers only. You can give us 75 bucks a year, which is a little bit cheaper, I think, in the long term than the $7 a month. But of course, you know, that's all up front. So be prepared on that. We're eventually going to, I think, boost some of the some of the perks for the people that want to give more than even 75 but you know, keep your eyes open for that. And we really want to, again, thank you so much for the support. It really means a lot, and we're going to keep the content coming. Don't you worry. But with all that being said, worldwarnow.substack.com, that's where everything goes down. That's our home base. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel as well, World War Now. Uh, like, share, comment. We love the YouTube comments as well. We like to answer. World War Now, Tele, T-E-L-E. Be sure to subscribe there. We're getting close to 1,000. Telegram is one of the best places to share information, so always keep up there. There's always going to be breaking news. And World War Now on Twitter, World War Now underscore. That's, of course, our fast-growing Twitter page. Follow me on Twitter, Gnome Rad. Follow Dimitri, O-Canonist, Orthodox Canonist. And, uh, yeah, with all of that, Dimitri, want to send us off here? Yeah, just hope all the Orthodox Christians and Christians of other denominations are having a great Lent at the moment. We're somewhat almost halfway through it, but there's still a quite a bit to go. So um, definitely keep your heads down, keep keep yourselves in prayer. Of those interested in the Orthodox Church, do just you know use something like Google. Google your nearest Orthodox Church, visit it on a Sunday, speak to the local priest, uh, become interested in that. Of course, follow us on our social medias as well. If you have any questions regarding Orthodoxy, do ask us, but we most likely will in in many cases redirect you to your local parish or your local priest because orthodoxy is 
a religion of of pra- of practice it is something you need to go to and and attend to in in praxis and not just theory so it's not just all about reading about the church you do need to get involved practically so uh definitely um you know stay alert and be very vigilant as well uh keep up with the news and we'll stay connected everyone visit your local church if you can and uh god bless